0: You know Mother's Day, as we said, it's a special day for every mom. Every mom is a a special mom, but rather than look at a special text on what certainly is a very special subject, we're just going to continue right on in our study through Mark this morning. We're actually going to be in Mark chapter 7, uh, toward the end there, verses 24 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some that you could use. You can use a Bible on your phone, you can uh, just Google Mark 7, NKJV if you want, but uh, any Bible is a good Bible, and uh, Rick's got some if you need some. But we're going to look at Mark chapter 7 this morning, and our text today, as luck would have it, right, is about a mother. And it's about a mother and her incredible faith, which is really uh, the model faith of this mother and so we have cleverly called today's message a mother's model faith so let's ask the lord just to bless uh his word today as we know he will father we thank you for today lord we thank you for this special day lord we thank you for all that you have done lord we thank you expectantly lord for all it is that you still want to do and we pray your blessing on this time as we go to your word lord we pray as we do every week that you would be our teacher lord that your spirit alone would open our hearts, Lord, and our ears. Give us understanding, Lord, of those things that you would speak to us today. And we thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, picking up where we've been with the disciples and Jesus, we've just had another one of these showdowns right there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. We saw the the Jewish religious leaders, right, who had come up all the way from down at Jerusalem. We called them kind of this fault-finding delegation. They had been sent up to find fault, with Jesus and with what Jesus was doing, of course, not able to find fault with him, what did they do? They easily found fault with the disciples. But in this case, they found fault. They, all they could do is make some accusations against the disciples for violating their traditions. Remember those traditions of men, all of those extra biblical rules and regulations that the Jews had kind of built up as a wall around the law. And remember in the confrontation that kind of ensued last week, Jesus not only did he point out the hypocrisy of these men, but you remember he called them hypocrites to their faces and he did it right and it was fitting right but he did it right in front of this multitude of people that were watching this entire thing unfold and though Mark doesn't specifically point it out for us this was yet another sort of a hinge point really in the hostility of these religious leaders towards Jesus and so what we see in the very next verse we're picking up in verse 24 It says in verse 24 of Mark 7 that from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So here Jesus takes his guys and he kind of withdraws up to the north. Again, not because he's afraid of the Pharisees, but because he knew that in the Father's timing that what? His hour had not yet come right? It wasn't time yet for the cross. There was still work to be done, and not the least of which was to prepare his men for his departure. And so he withdraws with them to allow kind of the tensions to settle down a little bit with the Jewish religious leaders, but really to get to a place where he could pour in to these disciples At this point, remember, he's got less than a year now with these guys, and so he's trying to answer their questions. He's really trying to speak into their lives, and within just a year or so from now, he is going to ascend to heaven, and he's basically going to hand the keys to the kingdom to these men who are all just in their 20s, right? Imagine that. He's going to entrust this to them, and so he needs to spend as much time as he can with them. We're familiar with that promise that he'll make in in John 14, he'll say that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to bring those things back to their remembrance, but Jesus needs to be able to say them first, right? And so he withdraws actually into Gentile territory, really just to get away from all of these Jewish crowds. And we've seen Jesus do this before. This is actually the third time that we've seen Israel kind of withdraw and retire from Israel proper to get aside. Remember, he did it when he and his men came ashore in Gadara, over there on the east side of the Galilee. And that's where, remember, the demoniac came running at them back in chapter five, this poor man who was you know, inhabited by, it said, a legion of demons. And of course, we know that Jesus delivered the man from the legion. And then he said to him, what, go home to your friends Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. And we said at that point, remember this was over there in Gentile territory that the Jews had settled there on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, but they had become overrun by Gentile peoples, right? Over there in the Decapolis, or these ten cities that were all very influenced by Greek culture. The second time we found them retiring from Israel proper, was just a few weeks back. It was just before Easter, but remember he had said to these guys back in the middle of chapter 6, he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest awhile." And remember that they went over to Bethsaida just on the eastern side of where the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee right up there at the north end of the lake, which again really was Gentile territory. But again, the multitudes had followed them over there, and that was the setup of course as Jesus miraculously feeds these 5,000 men plus women and children. So we've seen him do this before, but... Not like this. Because this third time that he, he now he goes up north, this time he goes at least 50 miles north deep into the area of what we would know as modern day Lebanon. It's this region of Tyre and Sidon, right? So this is a trip deep into Gentile territory. And I think that we're going to see that there's a real reason that we see him do this right at this particular point in his ministry. We know prophetically that Jesus is going to minister to the Gentiles, right? In Isaiah, he quoted Isaiah, but he was speaking of himself. He said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. And then it said, and in his name Gentiles will trust. And so here we see with kind of this increasing rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel, again, yet another sort of a breaking point in his dealings with Jesus and the religious leaders, right? We just saw it a few verses back with that whole hypocrite deal. But Jesus now steps kind of practically and prophetically way beyond the boundaries of the land of Israel physically, kind of making this declaration, I think, to the disciples prophetically that he will ultimately receive the Gentiles. And it's really interesting as we consider our text from last time in this showdown that Jesus just had with the religious leaders. Remember, he, we said that what he had really done there is he really sort of wiped out the distinction between clean and unclean foods. And now in today's text, Again, he's just ventured deep, deep up there into Gentile territory for a lesson, I think an object lesson to his guys that he has come ultimately, not just to wipe out the distinction between clean and unclean foods, but really to wipe out the difference between clean and unclean people. Because just in the same way that no good Jew would ever sort of soil his lips with forbidden foods, They would also never soil their lives with contact with these unclean, dirty Gentiles. So, not only had Jesus just taught them that foods were not unclean, but now he was going to illustrate that by going up here into Gentile territory. And so, I think this passage really kind of becomes for us and and for them really a, a, a beautiful proclamation, kind of a preview of the proclamation of the gospel. To the Gentile world. And so I think this is all kind of wrapped up in one reason prophetically that Jesus makes this move here. But I think as we're going to see in our text, that there's an even greater reason personally why Jesus went where he went. So again, in verse 24, it said, he arose and he went to this region of Tyre and Sidon. It said, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, right? He's just trying to get alone with his guys. It says, but he could not be hidden, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician, it says by birth. So I think that one of the main reasons that Jesus journeyed 50 miles north into Gentile territory It was this Gentile woman, right? So here's this deep trip into Gentile territory because there was a divine appointment with a desperate Gentile mother. Look back there at verse 24 where it says that he could not be hidden. And then in verse 25, it starts right out with what word? The word for or because, right? It's causative, right? Because, He couldn't be hidden because there was this woman here who needed him. And what I think is interesting, if if you look in John chapter 8, in this continuing confrontation that he's having with the religious leaders, in this one it says that they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them. It says, and so passed by. And we remember back at the beginning of his ministry, we've talked about it a couple times, remember Jesus made that first visit to Nazareth and he preached there in the synagogue and they were so incensed by what he said, remember they grabbed him and they threw him out of the synagogue and then they took him and dragged him up a cliff and they were going to throw him off of the cliff. But what does Luke tell us? He says that then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So again, Jesus simply slips away, right? Kind of like Jason Bourne, right? Or or Jack Bauer, right? If, If any of you are that old. But so the point is, when there's an angry crowd that wants to kill Jesus, he has no trouble hiding himself. But from this woman, right, this desperate woman, Jesus could simply not be hidden. Because Jesus never hides from human pain and human suffering. He can't hide himself from that ever. And not only do we see here, not only does he not hide from it, but he crosses borders to get to it. Remember when he crossed into Gadara, what did we say? He crossed over there specifically to set that demoniac man free. When he crossed over into that deserted place, right, there was a point to that. It was to feed this huge multitude of 15,000 people. Jesus always crosses borders if there are human needs to be met. He does that, and he has done exactly that in all of our lives, and that's exactly why many of us are here today. Right there was a point where we thought you know that Jesus is just kind of over there hanging out you know in the church with the church people right hanging out with the with the religious folks and yet at some point in each one of our lives Jesus crossed over and he met us he met us in our sin and he met us in our need and in our desperation and in our distress he came over into our world Right, and Maybe for some of us it was a world of drugs or of alcohol or immorality and idolatry or self-righteousness or pride or a combination of all of those things. Whatever it was for each one of us, he came over into that world and he rescued us out of it. This risen Jesus who we discovered really did care about us, and he cared about us right there where we were as we were living and as we were breathing and as we were hurting. Right? He cared about all of that emptiness, and he cared about our struggles, and he cared about our pain, and he crossed borders without any hesitation, and he stepped right into our lives just as he just stepped here into this woman's life. Right, the Bible declares in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe he comes into this area where this woman is and he couldn't be hid because he already knew exactly what he was going to do with her suffering. He knew exactly what he was there to do with her tormented daughter, who Mark tells us was possessed by a demon. Right, this is a young girl, right? The language would tell us she's probably seven, just ten years old perhaps, and she had been taken over by an evil or an unclean spirit. Now, it's, it's one thing for us to talk about demon possession in a room like this, right? Or, or when we read about it in the Bible, and even to understand it biblically, because it is something that is very real. But it's another thing altogether to be demon-possessed. And you just imagine, here is this precious child, right? Day and night is under the complete control of darkness. There is an unclean, demonic spirit that is doing to her and in her and through her whatever it is that that spirit decides to do. Now, of course, the most miserable person in that situation is the person who's demon-possessed. But a close second is any parent of that child. And so we try to just, play again, no mention of the father, right, where's he? But we try to put ourselves in the place of that mother as she's watching the devil do to her daughter day in and day out and night in and night out, whatever it does, and she has no power in and of herself to alleviate her child's suffering. Is forced just to watch it happen. And so it has driven this poor woman right to the point of utter desperation until she heard that Jesus was here because she had heard about Jesus. You remember back in chapter three, remember right as Jesus started doing all of these miracles down in the Galilee, we read something interesting that Mark told us. It said that a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, And, what's it say, those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So Jesus was known even way up there, 50 miles deep into Gentile territory. People were flocking from the region and then they were returning back to that region with these miraculous reports. And we can only wonder if this woman had desperately wanted to travel down there to him, but she simply couldn't, you know, with her daughter in the condition that she was. But here he is now, right here, in her area and she throws herself at his feet because she knew he could help because her own pagan gods had left her hopeless just as they always will in each of our lives. You know as a, as a Syrophoenician or basically a, a Phoenician person who was living in what was called then the Roman province of Syria, that's all it is, is a Syro-Phoenician, she would have been an idol worshiper, right? Deeply steeped in the worship, very likely, of Ashtaroth, right, this Canaanite moon goddess, right? The goddess of beauty and of sex and of sensuality and pleasure and also of prosperity and of wealth, right? But all of that, was of little help here in this desperate situation, and yet I believe that she knew that today was gonna be the day of her daughter's deliverance. And so this is what we read in the rest of verse 26, that she was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, I think it's interesting, the way that Mark writes this here, kind of in his economy with words, but he says that she kept asking Jesus. And we've talked about this before, right? That's that Greek tense, the imperfect tense, which indicates that it was a continuous action, right? She's continuing to cry out. She just simply won't stop crying out for him to heal, Now, we we kind of wonder why, but Matthew actually gives us some insight of exactly why this is the case. First of all, Matthew tells us that when she first cried out, this is what it says in Matthew 15. It says that his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. Now, don't you just love these guys? this point where we are right now, they're saying, send her away after all they've seen. These disciples truly had a great gift for sending people away, right, didn't they? And we remember, remember the last time they wanted to send people away, who was it? It was the multitude. Send the multitude away. And they wanted to do that just before Jesus did what was his greatest miracle to date right as he miraculously feeds this huge multitude with five little pita breads and two sardines. So these guys have an uncanny knack for sending people away moments before Jesus is about to do something phenomenal. That's kind of the legacy that they have. And they do the same thing here, right? Send her away, she's making a scene. You know, we're supposed to be up here by the shore on vacation, right? But now Matthew also tells us that there was yet another reason why this woman was continuously crying out, because it also says, Matthew, that when she did, it says that Jesus answered her not a word. So Jesus was completely silent to her cries. Now that does seem puzzling the disciples we get, right? But this sounds a little bit puzzling to me because it seems like if there were ever a situation where we think Jesus would respond quickly, it would be to a mother who was crying out helplessly over a demon-possessed child. And yet here this crying woman comes to Jesus and he answers her, not a word, but why? Of course, it doesn't make sense because of what we know about Jesus, right? It doesn't make sense because what we know about his power and about his great love for people and the compassion that he has. And so you look at this and you wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing here, right? He knows what he's going to do, right? It says in John chapter 8 that the Father has not left me alone. He says, I always do those things that please him. So Jesus knows what the Father's going to do here. He knows how this whole thing is going to end up. And when he looks at this woman, he can recognize that this is a woman of great faith. Now, how do I know that? Well, I don't want to spoil this for you, but at the end of our text, he's gonna give her exactly what she's asking for. Did I spoil that for anybody? Or did you, right? But Matthew also tells us that before Jesus does that, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. So he's going to commend her for this faith. But I don't think at this point she even understands just how great her faith is. We know the dumb disciples, they certainly don't understand, right, how great her faith is. And really, we wouldn't have any record of how great her faith is And what that means for our personal lives, unless Jesus here took the time like he does to draw it out of her. So this is Jesus drawing out this great faith that she has, because Jesus knew very well that a faith that cannot be tested is not a faith, right? Or like the old expression goes, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. He knows she's got this great faith, and he is going to test it, and he's going to bring out all of that beauty there. And the very first way that he does it is through his silence. And there's many of you in this room, I know that you've experienced this exact same thing. And I want to say this to you, never ever misunderstand the silence of God as a no from him. The silence of God is simply that, the silence of God. It doesn't represent a final answer from him related to anything. We're going to see that as we go through. So here in this this brief encounter with this woman, just a few verses long, we're going to be given this great insight into what a faith looks like that really prevails with God. That faith that pushes through that silence And we're going to see some things we otherwise wouldn't be able to see unless Jesus took this time to really draw it out of her. So we've got the disciples sending this person away. We've got this initial silence to her from Jesus. So that's what Mark doesn't record for us. But what he does record for us next is even worse, right? It's even more shocking, Right. Wait till you read number four, right? I mean, it sounds like clickbait. But when Jesus finally does say something, here's what he says to her. Look at verse 27. It says, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What? Right? So this is one of those verses that we read and it kind of just shocks us the first time we read it. You may have read this verse 10 different times, and it kind of shocks us each time we read it. I mean, especially if you're a brand new believer and you're dutifully reading through the Bible the first time and you come to this verse and it's like, wait a minute, did Jesus just call this woman a dog? Where's the Jesus that I was reading about till I got here to this story? Well, here's the deal. There are two very different words for dog in that culture. There was a very derogatory way to speak about dogs, right? The Gentiles were routinely called dogs by the Pharisees. They didn't have curse words in Israel, so the worst thing they could come up with was to call somebody like a, a dirty dog. So that's this very derogatory term, one type of dog. Those are kind of like the, the like packs of scavenger dogs that would travel all around Israel. They were pests. But this is, what, what Jesus here calls this woman is a different word. It's a different kind of a dog. It's like puppies, okay? What he calls her is the cute little house dogs that would be under the table with the kids during a mealtime. And in fact, all Jesus had to do was simply add the word little before the word dogs to make what's called the diminutive construction in the Greek. He was probably speaking Greek with her, right? She probably wasn't speaking Hebrew or Aramaic with him. One Greek scholar said this. He said that in the Greek, diminutives are characteristically affectionate. He says Jesus just took all the sting out of the word. So what Jesus is not saying is, get out of here, dog woman, right? That's what he's not saying. What he is saying, and I think that he may have even had a little smile on his face when he said it, right? And that's just some sanctified speculation on my part. But what he's saying more so is, you know, He says, we can't take the kids' food and give it to the puppies. Now, why not? Well, because the food of the good news of the gospel had to first be rejected by Israel before it could be officially offered to the Gentile world. We know that Jesus came into the world to save all of mankind. right? He came to save Jew and he came to save Gentile alike because he loved the Jews and he loved The Gentiles alike. But before he would broaden his ministry out to include the Gentiles, his initial focus was to give the Jews the first opportunity to recognize him as their promised Messiah as their savior, just as the scriptures had foretold. And and Paul kind of explains this to us a little bit in Romans chapter 1, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He says first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That was God's ordained order. Because understand this, the Jews were and still are God's chosen people. God chose them out of the world in order to reveal himself to the world through them. And when they failed in that calling, God still fulfilled his eternal plan in spite of them. And the way he did it was he sent Jesus as a Jew who brought the gospel to the Jews so that ultimately the world was still blessed and God was still revealed through the Jews once they had finally rejected Jesus at the cross, so that then now they have kind of been set aside, if you will, and God's focus has currently shifted now to us as the church, and we're the ones who've been entrusted to then take this message of the gospel out to the world. Now that may or may not have made any sense from a theological perspective, right? But the point is for us, is what does it mean to this poor woman, right? And her suffering daughter, right? Was Jesus just being kind of difficult with this broken-hearted woman or was he kind of just splitting these tiny theological hairs with her? Well, not at all. Again, what he was doing is he's drawing out from her what would be a real true expression of personal faith in order not just that her daughter would be healed, but that she herself would develop this strong faith in him and come into that place of a right relationship with him. So what he's doing is he's doing a much deeper work than she even knew, and it went way beyond just her immediate need, although her need was great. Her need to know him personally was great. And, and so often, too, we can sometimes wonder, you know, is Jesus just kind of being difficult with me? Right? Why isn't he answering my prayers immediately? And why isn't he helping me out presently? And so often what we find out as we look back is that he was doing something much, much deeper. You know, so often it's simply him allowing us to discover true faith, and perseverance and, and prayer that prevails. And these are invaluable things for us to understand that not only are gonna help us in our present situation, but in the next situation and for a billion years to come in eternity, right? So this was a test of her repentance and of her faith, right? So as a Gentile, right, even a Gentile puppy, she had no claim to Jesus. She had no claim to any of his blessings. So the real question is, how is she going to respond to that fact? Well, look at verse 28, where she says, she says, who do you think you're calling a dog? How dare you? Oh, wait a minute. That's not right. Sorry. That was the me, my us translation. What it says in the real Bible, read it with me. It says, and she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. So this is a move of absolutely magnificent humility and of great faith. She isn't offended for a moment by what Jesus said. She got exactly what it was he was saying, and she even agrees with it. When she says there, yes, Lord, what she's literally saying is truth, Lord, Or actually, amen, Lord. Amen. Amen to that, Jesus. Lord, of course, she's recognizing him as supreme, right? The supreme master of authority. In in Matthew's account, she actually says, O Lord, son of David. So understand, this Gentile woman saw with the eyes of faith exactly what it was that the Jewish religious leaders refused to see, and that was that he was the Messiah of Israel, and he saw that she saw that. And then what she does is she does something wonderful, as Mark records here for us. So it's not often that you can top something that Jesus has said. And it's not really that she tops him on it, but she does something that's so very clever and so very insightful, and Jesus respects it because it really reveals her great humility. She takes this illustration that he had started with the dinner table and the children and the pet puppies and all of these things, and she just continues right on with it in her reply, and she says, look, Lord, I'm not asking for a seat at the table. I'm not asking for the food or the miracles or the things that you have set aside for the Jews. All I'm asking for is a crumb. I just want a tiny little bit off of their table, this table that you have prepared for them that they are largely ignoring. I just want a crumb from this lavish feast, anything that could fall off of the table. All I want is the deliverance of my daughter. Now remember, she had heard all the stories and she knew that what she was asking for was just a crumb compared to the sheer magnitude of people that Jesus was healing and delivering and teaching and blessing in every other way down there in Israel. And she's saying, Lord, even if you do this for me, you will still possess blessing enough for the Jewish people. You'll still have power enough to deliver in every way that they may need deliverance. So there's this incredible humility, and she even picks up, this is a smart woman, she picks up on that diminutive that he has used, and she even adds to it. So what she actually says is wonderful. She says, yes, Lord, but the little puppies under the table... Eat the little children's little crumbs, right? So she takes it and applies it all the way through the whole thing. And there's this wonderful persistence and a perseverance to her faith, but it's all bathed. Notice this now, you guys, pay attention if you're drifting off. This wonderful perseverance is bathed in this great humility. Right? So here's Jesus drawing out her faith. And here she is responding to Jesus with great humility. And she had this wonderfully confident humility. Right? She's got the silence of Jesus. When the response does come from Jesus, it's worse than the silence. But she presses through all of it. You would have thought she would have been so discouraged that she would have simply quit like we do. Right? But she doesn't. And do you know why she doesn't quit? Because she hasn't heard no from him yet. A desperate faith has to hear an absolute no, and this woman has yet to hear the word no. Jesus hasn't said no to her related to her need. He said a lot of other things, but no hasn't been one of them. And I think that there's such an important lesson here to all of us in terms of the persistence of prayer. You remember the way that Jesus sort of finished off the Sermon on the Mount. It's a wonderful passage on prayer. He says, "'Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened.'" Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God wants to give us good things. And he knows what things are good for us. And he knows the things that will really bless us. But he wants us to engage, first of all, in coming to him, but then in pressing further into him so that we can really discover exactly what those things are, right? Ask, seek, knock. There's this kind of a a progressive intensity there because with each step, we press further and further into him and he draws more and more faith out of us as we discover more who he is. So those verses, please don't miss, these are are not some magical formula, some way that we can leverage the Lord for what we want, but they are the path for us to discover what it is that he wants for us as his children. Jesus says we're to have this intensity and a passion and a persistence in the way that we seek him because those things show that what we're seeking is his heart. And they show that we share his heart. It shows that we care about the things that he cares about. So understand that that the purpose of persistent prayer is never because we have to overcome God's stubbornness or his resistance, right? But what persistent, passionate prayer does is it gives glory to him because it expresses our dependence upon him. And it's this process by which our hearts become more aligned with his heart. And I love this woman because she demonstrates all of that for us here in her desperate situation. She wouldn't give up. She continues to pray. She continues to intercede. And so this is the kind of faith and the kind of persistence that gets God's attention and that he wants to bless so this passage gives us this wonderful record of a faith that prevails with God. That's the value of it. Here's a faith that prevailed with Jesus. And I think that this is so important for us as Christians because faith can be a very confusing subject for us, right? What do we pray about? What do we not pray about? What do we keep praying about? Or what are we not supposed to keep Praying about. And within the body of Christ there are so many different voices that talk about faith and that talk about prayer and talk about all these kinds of things and very often on two different extremes. Right? You've got one section of the body of Christ, they elevate our faith and give it an authority that almost makes us divine. Right? It's almost like if we have enough faith in what we're asking God, that God is somehow forced or that he's compelled by our faith to give us whatever it is that we're asking for, whether it's wealth or healing or whatever it is our faith is demanding. And it almost gets sort of painted as this means of manipulating God. And you have a very large group within the church. They're very vocal about faith in that way. And they fly in very fancy jets most of the time, right? But then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Christians who really give faith hardly a thought at all. Now, these are people who love the Lord and they are on their way to heaven. There's no doubt about any of that, but they never exercise any faith. You never really see an act of faith in their life because their their position is kind of, well, God's almighty, and he's going to do whatever he wants to do, and whatever he wants to do is okay with me. So why bother coming to him with these kind of humanly impossible situations? And so we kind of look at all of this different kind of teaching and these different ideas that people have, and we can wonder, well, how in the world are we supposed to view faith biblically, right? Can our faith actually change a situation? Can it actually influence a situation? Well, here in this passage, this woman, this Greek woman demonstrates a faith in Jesus that really prompts his admiration and his respect. And I think because of that, it makes it very, very valuable to us. And one of the things about her situation, I think is especially important for us to take note of is that she exercises faith and she persists in prayer in an area where God has not already given a promise that he will always do such and such in this situation. And here's what I mean by that. There are situations in our lives where we can take a promise from God, right? We can take it from the word of God, where Paul says that, you know, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Or Paul tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And we can take our situation, whatever it is, And we can say, you know what, that promise to me as a Christian, that promise is going to have the final say in this situation. And I don't need to move that promise to the right or move it to the left. And our faith in that situation is going to be demonstrated by the way that we faithfully wait until God's word does have the final say. So our faith is just to hold on to that promise, right? So that's one kind of a situation that we all face. But what about the situations in life like this woman has here where there is no sure promise that God is going to do the same thing each time? Where he could really go either way on a given situation. This woman has no promise that she can find in God's word that says that Jesus shall deliver the Gentile demon-possessed daughters of Gentile mothers. There's no promise for that, that she can claim. Now he could do it or he could not do it, right? So there's many things in our own Christian life that fall into that kind of category where God could really go either way. But again, her whole example gives us some insight about what prayers and what faith should be like in order to have influence. And so what is it we see her do? Well, there have been a bunch so far, right? So she brings her need to Jesus himself in desperation, and she has this full confidence that he can grant her request. She comes in this wonderful humility despite the fact that she knows she's got nothing coming from her. From him, right? She was an idolater. She was a sinner. She was outside of the promises of God, just as we all were, and yet she's throwing herself at the mercy of God. She pressed through the silence of God, right? She heard no, but she Passed, pressed right through that as jesus was developing and drawing out this faith she didn't allow herself to be discouraged by the followers of jesus as they were trying to send her away it's so sad but so true but so often we can get so discouraged by god's people that we just give up trying to seek the lord But instead, what does she do? She continues to persevere right through it. And then, even though, now this is new, so tune back in, right? Because even though she couldn't pray the promise of God, what she does is she taps in and she prays the person of God, right? She prays the character of God as she knew it. Because from all that she knew about Jesus and had heard about Jesus, she knew him to be empathetic. She knew him to be compassionate. She knew him to be merciful and gracious. And she knew him to be loving and to be caring. And so by faith, she presses into those things. She trusts in those things. She entrusted herself and her daughter to those things humbly. She accepted her place as a little puppy. She believed his word to her. Right? And we need to recognize, I think, just the power of coming to God just as we are in our poverty and in our desperation and in our need and in our humility. And then just allowing him to show himself strong on our behalf in whatever way. He chooses to do that, not necessarily the way that we would choose, but really trusting the fact that Jesus loves to pour out his grace on the weak and the helpless. That, I believe, is the power of prevailing prayer. And it was her great humility that really demonstrated her faith. She had faith in him that he was going to respond the way that he knew in his wisdom would be the best. And then look what it says in verse 29. It says that then he said to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. So all of that, we get to this. This is the kind of a humble faith that prevails with God and the kind of faith that blesses Jesus, right? A model faith is a great faith that's coupled with great humility. He grants her request. Jesus says here, he grants it for this saying, or effectively, because of the way that you have responded in humble faith, he says, your daughter is delivered. And notice Jesus did this without even moving a muscle. It's actually Interestingly, this is the only miracle recorded by Mark that Jesus performed at a distance, right, without even giving any kind of a a vocal command. And the only other time that we see this in any of the Gospels is Matthew chapter 8, when he healed the Roman centurion's servant. Now, of course, interesting, you Bible students already picked up on this. I know, you're a smart group. In both cases, these are Gentiles that Jesus is healing before he goes to the cross. And so the fact that he heals them from a distance is just a reminder of the spiritual distance between the Jews and the Gentiles that still existed at this time. That was just a fun freebie for Mother's Day, right? Isn't the Bible awesome? Okay, the point is, Jesus said, all right, it's done, she's free, and she was. And I love that because what it tells us is that somehow, somewhere in his sovereignty, in his spirit, in his heart, he said to that demon, right, whether that demon was a bedroom away or five miles away or 10 miles away, whatever it was, you know, he could have said this to that demon from down in the Galilee. And yet he came up here because he wanted to work in this woman's life. But he said to that demon, wherever that demon was, Jesus says, Vamus, right, get out. And then he says to the woman, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And it's in that, this beautiful tense that indicates for us that this is the final answer. This is the perfect tense, right, which indicates this was a one-time kind of a completed deal. And the idea is that the cure is already completely complete, right? That demon is gone, and that demon will not be coming back again. When Jesus says something is done, you can be sure that it's done. It says in verse 30, and when she had come home to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter laying on the bed. And what else would we expect, right? Now, it's interesting I think here in this account, we're gonna see it next week as we continue in Mark, and actually there's no record anywhere else in any gospel, there's no record of anything else that Jesus did during the time he was up here, way up here in Gentile territory. Nothing else he did 50 miles deep up here in Tyre and Sidon. In fact, the very next verse in Mark's account Glance at it now, it'll give us a head start for next week. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And what I love that this tells us about Jesus because it reinforces for us that his only divine appointment, right, his great practical purpose in going here in the first place was simply to meet the needs of this woman of faith and her afflicted daughter because like we said when we started Jesus never hides himself from human suffering he crosses borders in order to step into that pain and to provide deliverance and just one more quick thing before we close don't turn there but in Acts 21 okay so Acts 21 would be about 28 years after this point about 28 years after this little girl has just been healed. But in Acts 21, this is when Paul had just left Ephesus for the last time. He was headed back down there toward Jerusalem, where he would have his own conflict with some of these very same religious leaders that Jesus is dealing with. But here's what we read of Paul's journey in Acts chapter 21. It says that finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. So that's right where we are in our story today. He says, for the ship was there to unload her cargo. It says, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So there were believers there in this city by that point it says they told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem and when we had come to the end of those days we departed and went on our way and they all accompanied us wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed and when we had taken our leave of one another we boarded the ship and they returned home so 28 years later Paul is going to find this community of believers entire Right, this Gentile-dominated area. And this is a community of believers that is big enough to include wives and to include children. And I'm going to go out on a pretty safe limb this morning, and I'm going to guarantee you that this woman, right, this Syrophoenician woman from Tyre and Sidon, she was right there with her daughter to greet Paul as he came in with his traveling party, they found all these beautiful disciples. They spent seven days with these people. No doubt, they were sharing the stories. And I can only imagine that at some point, Paul must have said as he met this woman, he probably had tears in his eyes, and he said to her, you know what? I've heard about you. You're the one. And she says, yes, that's me. And she says, and this is my daughter. And these are her children, right? These are my beautiful grandchildren. And you just imagine that kind of a scene and how it plays out so many years later, right? How gracious God is, and all because of this one woman and her humble faith, this model faith of this one mother. And I know on a day like today that there are some moms here, maybe even some dads, and you are struggling because you're not on that side of the story yet. Right, and there may be some in this room, or or some of them may even be at home because it's too painful even to come to church on a day like today. But some who have a son or a daughter or a loved one that's out there under the control of the world and you are tormented and you are tortured and you've sought the Lord on it and you just think he's not listening but you're struggling to, to press through that. And, and maybe you're saying, you know what, this was for me today. And, and for some of you, I know this could be, it's a year long story or maybe it's a five year or it's a 10 year story. For some of you, this could be a 20 year or more story. But I know in a group like this, there are very likely years of heartache, but I wanna encourage you that Jesus cares. And that one of the reasons that this story is put to the page is so that the Lord can encourage each and every one of us, again, never misrepresent my silence. I Don't misinterpret it. It doesn't mean that I'm not listening. Jesus says, I feel your pain and I know your emotion, but I want you to continue to press into me. And I want you just to continue to trust in this confident humility that I'm at work. Because Jesus says, you know what? The final pages of your story are not finished yet. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for um, just the great encouragement that your word provides to us, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful example of this mother, Lord. We thank you for all of the faith-filled mothers like her that are here in our church family. Lord, we thank you for those even who are hurting, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak encouragement, Lord, to their hearts as only your Spirit can do. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, fill them afresh this morning, Lord, that they would be able to persist and to prevail in prayer for their child. And So, Lord, we thank you, and we praise you, Lord, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's stand up, and let's worship the Lord.